All right, why don't you turn with me again to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 8. Uh, two weeks ago, we did an overview of Leviticus 1 through 7, and uh, if you weren't here for that, you can find the audio of that on the website. That would be, certainly be helpful by way of context. Uh, we will do a little review. Uh, but we are in a five-week series through the book of Leviticus trying to understand how God opened up a way for God's people to have access to him, for God's people to be able to meet with him. How can a holy God and a sinful people meet? It's only the way that God provides. It's only through a representative. It's only through sacrifice. That's what the book of Leviticus is about. This is week two of our five-week series. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to look at verses, our chapter 8 and 9 and part of 10. We won't make it through all of 10 uh, here this morning. Would you pray with me one more time as we begin? Father God, we thank you for the opportunity now to look into your word. We do say all we have is Christ. And so as we see the building blocks of the gospel put in place through the sacrificial system, would our hearts sing again and again, Christ is our representative. He is our high priest. He is our sacrifice. He is the only way. So would we come to you in accordance with your word, through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. The role of an ambassador is an interesting one. Uh, as a president appoints ambassadors, sometimes I think, well, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Be able to live in an embassy in a foreign country, that would be. And then sometimes I think, who would want that job? To be an ambassador to that country? Who would want it? So when we want to communicate to another country what we as a country want, we can't all go over there. We have to send a representative, an ambassador. And in our day, it's, it's one nation being represented to another nation. But if you go back in history, an ambassador was, wasn't so much representing the nation as was representing the king. The king would send a representative to another king. And though you and I couldn't go and have a hearing with the king, the king's representative, the ambassador, could, could have a hearing with the king of another nation. It was a very important role, and it was very important that the ambassador represent the king well, not only his intentions, but his character, that he would be someone who, who speaks the truth about the kingdom, but especially the king who was sending him to the other nation. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, we have talk of ambassadors, but it's actually a whole nation. The whole nation of Israel was to be God's ambassador to the nations, to tell the truth about what God is like, about, what, about God's agenda to the nations. So when we think about the nation of Israel, we think about the sacrificial system or some of the more obscure laws that we're going to look at in the next few weeks in our Leviticus series, we need to hold it in the context of they were to represent a holy God distinctly to other nations. They were to be like God. They were to be a kingdom of priests we're going to be introduced to the Levitical priest, Aaron and his sons in this passage. But really the whole nation was to be set apart. The whole nation was to be a kingdom of priests. Uh, an ambassador, a holy nation to represent God well. So we're not surprised 
Israel's to be holy, that we're going to have some pretty particular laws about what's holy and what is unholy or, or just common, what is clean and what is unclean, what could be in the camp and what had to be outside of the camp, what could go into the tabernacle and what had to stay outside of the tabernacle. All of these distinctions are to remind us that what we saw two weeks ago, God is holy. I'm a sinner. I'm separated. In fact, I deserve eternal separation. I deserve death. The gospel's language is being laid out for us here in the book of Leviticus. And if we miss that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to be an ambassador, represent God to the world, we'll struggle with some of these laws, some of these rules that we have being put into uh, place. Uh, Last time, two weeks ago, we went back to the book of Exodus. And remember, we talked about how it culminates in the creation of the tabernacle as the dwelling place of God. And in Exodus chapter 40, God moves in. He's going to dwell in the midst of a sinful people through this tabernacle. But then we find in the next verse, and Moses couldn't go in. So we said, there's a question, there's a problem, right? How does the meeting place of God become, sorry, the dwelling place of God become the meeting place. And we said, Moses is going to enter in Leviticus chapter 9. That's in our passage this week. And what comes between Exodus 40 and Leviticus chapter 9 is sacrifice. That's how this is going to, to change. So we can think to ourselves, okay, we have, we have the law about the tabernacle. So the tabernacle has been created. The tent has been erected. There it is. God has moved in. Now we have instruction about the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system is now in place. We're good to worship, aren't we? We get everything we need. Well, we learn we're actually missing representatives. We need, we need priests. We need people that can represent God, but also that represent the people to God. This priestly order is what's being set up here in Leviticus chapter 8 and 9 and 10. We could say that Leviticus chapter 8 is uh, the installation service or the ordination service, right? They're being consecrated. They're being set apart. And then the first service, first worship service, the sacrifices begin in chapter 9. To be a kingdom of priests, Israel needed a tribe of priests. Those who would be set apart by God to represent Israel before the Lord. They needed someone. They needed help. They needed a representative. I want to look at Leviticus chapter 8, 9, and 10 with you this morning. And I'll have one point for each chapter. The first point is this. Worshiping God requires representation. Aaron and his sons, they're going to serve as priests, as representatives for God, as representatives before God. They're going to make sacrifices for the people. So God instructs Moses to gather everyone together, to gather all the supplies, everything needed for the sacrificial system. Gather Aaron, gather the priests, gather the congregation. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bed. Assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the entrance of the tabernacle here. And Moses did as the Lord commanded, 
And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Moses obeys. This is emphasized again and again. There's a refrain. There's a chorus in chapter 8. Moses did as the Lord commanded. Some version of that. We see it seven times. Moses is doing what the Lord instructs. What does he instruct? Well, verses 5 all the way down to verse 30 is God's instruction to Moses and regarding Aaron and these priestly items. So there's a process that's being laid out here for the rest of the chapter. Using all the supplies we read about in verse 2. Right? So we have all the supplies gathered. What are we going to do with them? Well, he goes one by one. Okay, this is how you're going to use the oil. This is how you're going to use the garments. Uh, and he goes kind of through that. I want to just kind of skip over the chapter with you. So if you have a Bible, uh, put your finger there in chapter 8 verse 5, and we're just going to kind of glance down at some key ideas so you can get a, a feel for the terrain. Verses 5 through 9, let's, let's read verse 5. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. So verse 6, he gathers Aaron and his sons, and they have to be cleaned. Now, now the garments and the rest of Verses 6 through 9, these special priestly garments, they were to be made beautifully to display God's glory. They have the task of mediating between God and man. Then down in verse 8, we have the Urim and the Thummim. These aren't fully explained in scripture, but they seem to be these two stones of different colors that would have been in the breastplate of the priest that would have been used as a legitimate way to seek God's will. Interestingly, as we begin reading about the priests, these representatives, is we have this kingly language. So verse 8, verse 9, there's a crown. Verse 10, they're anointed. So the priests are anointed before Israel ever has a king anointed. So when the king's anointed, you're thinking, well, that's a priestly thing for a king to be anointed. And when the priest gets a crown, you think, well, that's a kingly thing for the priest to get a crown. You get this idea that, okay, there's kings and priests and these things are important roles. And there's, there's a little bit of overlap here as God does this work. Before we go down to the anointing of verse 10, note again the, the chorus at the end of verse 9, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then in verses 10 through 13, you have the oil to be used to, uh, for the tabernacle and for Aaron set apart for service as the Lord commanded Moses. Verses 14 through 17, there's this sin offering. A bull mentioned back in verse 2 is now being offered for the purification of the priests and the altar. Just note we're going to set aside a special people, the priests. But even they're sinners. Even the priests contaminate this. So the, the priests have to be consecrated and the place has to be consecrated. And the priests have to be ongoingly consecrated. There has to be this purification, this preparation for worship. Verse 17, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then verse 18, we have a burnt offering. Aaron and his sons dedicate all of themselves. The burnt offering was entirely burnt up, as we saw two weeks ago, to the Lord. Look at verse 21. Uh, it was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Then we have a, a, a peace offering, this offering of installation in verses 22 and following. Maybe you've read this passage before and thought, what in the world is going on? But there was blood that was to be placed on, on the right earlobe and the right hand and the big toe on the right foot. And you think, man, the priests were righties. No, it's, it's, it's using the extremes to represent the whole, right? All of the priests had to be consecrated with blood. All of the priests need to be made holy. Total dedication, total priesthood. This is how one author beautifully put it. The priest must have consecrated ears ever to listen to God's holy voice. Consecrated hands at all times to do holy deeds. Consecrated feet to walk ever more in holy ways. And then in verse 30, I already had talked about the garments, but now we have oil and blood that go on the garments. And then in chapter 8, verse 31, through the end of the chapter, we have a meal. Remember the, remember the pattern. Sacrifice, then fellowship. Sacrifice, then the meal. This is the pattern that we see and we remember even here. Lord willing, next Sunday, right? Cross, then the supper. Only the blood of Christ cleanses us. Only the blood of Christ can prepare us for communion around the Lord's table. So as a meal, this event at the end of Leviticus 8 symbolizes this connection, this bond between Christ, or between the Lord rather, and the priesthood. And so as we gather around the table, we're reminded of the union we have in Christ, the, the fellowship we have with God and with one another. Notice the end of the chapter, verse 35. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain seven days, day and night, so that you do not die, for so I have commanded. And then one last time, the refrain, and Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. It's interesting, as we come to the book of Leviticus, we'll see this pattern again. We can be polluted by sin in a moment, but it takes a process to be sanctified. It takes time. Seven days they were to, to wait. There's a warning here. They're not to be messing around. This isn't just kind of a religious pageant that they kind of, okay, this is kind of pointless, but we'll do it because the Lord commanded obedience. No, this was solemn. This was serious. Strict obedience was absolutely necessary. As we think about even the priests needing to be consecrated, we're reminded that sin is universal. Sin is pervasive. We read in the New Testament very clearly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even the priests are polluted by sin. Even the priests can't just go and make a sacrifice for the people. They need to be consecrated. We're reminded as the blood is applied to the priests that, that every part of us is affected by sin. Our sin is so pervasive. Every part. There's not some island of holiness remaining in us. No, we are sinners through and through. So Paul can write this, and he's summarizing just Old Testament quotes. 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed, in, in, uh, to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every part of us needs atonement. Every part of us is affected by sin. I don't know you, but I know this about you. You are a sinner through and through. I am a sinner through and through. And so we need the blood applied. Last week we said, God is holy, I'm a sinner, I deserve to die. And here we're seeing, God is holy, I'm a sinner, I need a representative before God. That representative needs to be consecrated and set apart. Not just any representative will do for a sinful people before a holy God. We need a mediator, a a, a go-between between God and us. And of course, Aaron and his sons, they had to do this repeatedly. The daily sacrifices were for them and for the people. Hebrews 7 tells us, Jesus Christ has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. We need a representative who perfectly keeps God's law. We need a better high priest than Aaron and his sons. We need Jesus. He is the better high priest. He is the better sacrifice, offering himself for us all. The universality and pervasiveness of our sin did not extend to him, the sinless son of God. And so he represents us. Sinners need a representative before a holy God, and Jesus alone is the holy one who represents us, who is the representative you need. There is no worshiping God without representation. But point number two, chapter nine, worshiping God requires not only representation, chapter eight, but also sacrifice, chapter nine. So how can the dwelling place of God become the meeting place with God? He's holy, we're sinners. How can the glory of God appear in the midst of a sinful people and then not be consumed? It's only through sacrifice. It's only through a substitute. Here in chapter 9, we have the first service of this new priesthood. Everything is in place now. And we have it presented in in kind of the logical or gospel order like we saw two weeks ago. Cleansing through blood, then consecration of the whole, and then fellowship with God. Cleansing through blood, this is the sin or the guilt offering, right? Consecration of the whole, this is the, do you remember? The burnt offering, all of it is consumed. Fellowship with God, this is pictured in the peace offering, the meal to be partaken by the priests. So this first service culminates in a meal and then the appearing of the glory of God. Tim read this earlier. It's the climax of the book to this point. Remarkable. Look back at verse 22 of chapter 9. Moses lifts up his hands toward the people. He blesses them. He came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And then here it is, what we've been waiting for since Exodus 40. Moses and Aaron 
went into the tent of meeting. They came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from before the Lord, consumed the burnt offering, pieces of fat on the altar. The people saw it, they shouted, they fell on their faces. They saw the glory of the Lord. The sacrifice has been accepted. This is how it could have always been. This, is, this could have continued on forever. Priests doing their job. People coming in faith with their sacrifices. The Lord accepting it. You see the quote in your bulletin. Leviticus is not a bunch of random rules. It's the resolution of a problem. And here is the resolution through sacrifice, through representation. In Exodus 40, the glory enters, but Moses can't. But now Moses enters. And the glory appears. And a sinful people are not consumed. Rather, the sacrifice is consumed in their place. And they respond with worship. They couldn't go up Mount Sinai and see the glory of God. Only Moses could. And now Moses can't. But through sacrifice, Moses can. And now they can see the glory of God in this meeting place. The connections with the gospel and the, the hope for us today are many. I want to just mention a couple here. Our sin is pervasive, but if you're a believer, you've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Cleansed from all your sin. 1 John 1, 7. Your freedom is blood-bought. And so is your worship, soaked in the blood of the Lamb. Sin's penalty has been paid, and so the blood of Christ cleanses us. You don't need to offer a daily sacrifice to know this cleansing. You don't need to bring blood anymore. The blood of Christ has been applied. You, you need to enter into this fellowship through Christ, confessing your sin and trusting in him. As a Christian, brothers and sisters, we read again in 1 John chapter 1, you will sin. But what will you do with your sin? That's so important. We must live 1 John 1, 9 lives if we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, restore fellowship with the Father. When was the last time you confessed it? Do you live functionally like you've never sinned? Do you find it easy to go days or maybe weeks without stopping and recognizing Indwelling sin. Allow Leviticus 8 and 9 to prompt you. To remind you how pervasive sin is. To prompt you to confess. Aaron offered daily sacrifices for his sins. And the sins of the people. Look at chapter 9 verse 7. Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and burnt offering. And make atonement for yourself and for the people. The pattern has been set. Daily sacrifice, daily confession of sin. So when was the last time you confessed your sin to, to God? The need of, 
for confession, agreeing with God regarding your sin, hasn't been, been lessened. If you never see and deal with the sin that is in your life as a Christian, aren't you acting more like a non-Christian, right? The Bible draws the line not between those who don't sin and those who do sin, but rather between those who recognize their sin, confess their sin, and trust Christ's sacrifice, and those who do not. So are you trusting Christ's sacrifice for your sin? Are you living in honesty, openness before the Lord? Is, is your faith leading you to hide your sin or confess your sin? Is it leading you to walk in the light daily or to continue in darkness? Worshiping God requires sacrifice. There was no once for all sacrifice in the Old Testament. But there is in Jesus. He's provided a way of atonement for his people here through the sacrificial system, ultimately, finally, through Jesus Christ. We're reminded at the end of chapter 9 that this could have gone forever, could have gone on forever with the priests and Aaron and his sons doing their job. People bringing their sacrifices in faith. And of course, I don't mean forever in a literal sense, but I just mean this could have just kept going. It's a really good thing. What a gracious provision of the Lord that the dwelling place might become a meeting place. Which leads us right into chapter 10. Jolts us. Leviticus chapter 10, point number three, worshiping God requires obedience. At the end of chapter 9, everything is in place. The priests are consecrated. The blood is on their ear and on their hand and on their feet. Their garments have been consecrated. The sacrifices have been made. The tabernacle is up and running and Aaron and his sons are serving as the representatives. The priests are amazed to see the fire come, consume the sacrifice. Worship had the right representatives in place. Worship had the right sacrificial system in place. And then we read chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron... Each took his own censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. After doing what God had commanded, chorus, 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 in chapter 8 into chapter 9, we read at the end of chapter 10, verse 1, they offered unauthorized fire that he had not commanded them. You see the contrast. They did what God commanded. They did what God commanded. They did what God commanded. They did what God did not commanded. After the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering, the climax in chapter 9, verse 24, here the fire comes out from before the Lord and consumes them, Aaron's sons. We don't know what this unauthorized fire was. I think it's likely that they tried to enter the Holy of Holies. Cross-reference would be chapter 16, verse 1. 
This is the context, the immediate context for the instruction given about the Day of Atonement. We don't know exactly what the fire was, but what's clear is this. God hadn't commanded it. It's not what he had asked for. They were doing something God didn't require of them. Didn't allow. This is disobedience. We don't know their intentions. Maybe they were pure intentions. Maybe they were perverted intentions. We don't know. What is clear is it's what God had commanded that they're failing to do, and they're doing what God hadn't commanded. He's not judging intentions here, but actions. And this is disobedience. As we end here, I want to draw out two lessons from their deaths. This passage should get our attention. Verse 4, Aaron's other sons are instructed to clean up, basically remove the bodies. Aaron is still waiting, still in this pint of uh, being purified so as to not contaminate himself. Further instruction is given regarding uh, how the priests are to be distinct. There's a little scare at the end of chapter 10 regarding some of his other sons. But here I want to zoom in on this unusual, this attention-getting section. Two lessons as we conclude. First, there's no small sense. There's no small sins. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah. We went through the book of Genesis a couple of years ago. And we think, oh man, God judging Sodom and Gomorrah. Like that, that makes sense, right? We can, we, can, we can see that. But these new priests, they're rookies. They have all their garments right. They've been consecrated and they bring the wrong fire in this. Friends, it's like eating forbidden fruit. Or looking back, or touching the ark, or lying about some real estate. These stories exist for our instruction. So one pastor put it, there's no small sin against a holy God. Sin only seems trivial to us when God's holiness seems trite. But when you see God as holy, as distinct, as separate, as absolutely pure, we see no sin is small. He continues, to say no sins are small doesn't mean all sins are the same. Some sins are worse than others and carry greater consequence. But we do not want to shrink any sin. When we read about Nadab and Abihu, we're reminded because God is that holy. Our sin is that serious. Maybe as we were studying in Sunday school through Habakkuk, you've been tempted at times, even as Ben challenged us last Sunday morning, to compare your sin to others. Maybe to our society. Reduce the seriousness, right? Uh, one, one preacher friend put it this way. I thought this was a good illustration. We look at the culture and we see a, like a blowtorch. And you think, well, that's really destructive. And that sin is like obvious. Like that's, wow. And we have our candle. But both will burn the house down. All sin is serious. All sin can be destructive. There's no small sins. So let me ask you, what sin have you made small in your own mind? What are you excusing? What, what, what sin have you grown comfortable with? Maybe God isn't consuming you, and so you've 
thought, okay, I'm good. Well, we read in Romans 2 that he may just be being patient with you to lead you to repentance. Second lesson, God cares how we worship. God gave complete, absolute instructions to his people. They weren't to be guessing how to worship Yahweh. You can read through the Old Testament and you think, well, they didn't leave a lot of room for guessing, right? There's clear instruction what God expected. They weren't to be making assumptions. They weren't to kind of risk it out on their best of intentions. They were to obey. Obedience was to be, is to be the grounds of true worship. And such obedience requires us to know his his will. So worshiping God begins with an attentiveness to God's word. What has he said? How has he instructed us? What are his desires? And then obedience to God's word. So we think corporately, as we think in the New Testament church, as we worship God, it requires obedience to God. Should be, our worship should be regulated by scripture. What has God commanded us to do? That we want to do. Not creativity, Make it up as you go. Create your own adventure. Anything that seems good can go into the corporate worship bucket. This isn't an hour that Christians get to kind of design to their liking. No, we come to our Bibles and we say, we want to be attentive to what you've said and obedient to what you've instructed. You've instructed us to read the Bible as we gather, to pray in light of Scripture, to hear the Word preached and proclaimed, to sing the Bible. And to see and practice the ordinances. That's what we want to do. We want our worship to be regulated by Scripture and centered around Scripture. So we don't apologize that when you come here on Sunday morning, the songs are going to be scriptural. They're going to taste Bibly. You can, you can listen to a lot of Christian songs that don't taste Bibly. We're going to read the Bible. Tim read a whole chapter out of the book of Leviticus. If we're not into this kind of worship, that's boring. But if we want to do biblical worship, we want to be attentive. Okay, what does God have for us? He's speaking to us. We want to hear God's word read in our, our church services. It is an indictment on Baptists and evangelicals that there is more scripture read at liturgical services that don't actually believe the Bible than in many Bible-believing churches. We want to read lots of Bible, right? We want to have worship that's informed with God's word. He cares how we worship. So we want to be attentive to his word. How about individually? Worshiping God with our lives. Not just for one hour on Sunday morning together, but throughout the week. Worshiping God with our lives requires obedience to God. So a life that glorifies God is a life that's lived in obedience to God's word. So your life begins with attentiveness to God's word and then obedience to God's word. We don't have to guess, right? God expects us to obey all that he's revealed to us. God expects us to obey and and all that he expects has been revealed. Praise God. Do you ever think of that? All that he expects of you has been revealed to you. Isn't that a comfort? You won't, you won't stand before the Lord and he'll pull out some other standard that you didn't know about. Some other ruler that you didn't see. You'll say, no, you told me. I, I knew it was revealed. 
like Israel, ours is to listen, ours is to read, ours is to obey. Yes, God cares about the heart, but let's not excuse any disobedience in our lives on the grounds of good intentions. Consider Moses' obedience. What an example in this passage. Complete loyalty to Yahweh, carrying out the Lord's instructions through the sacrificial system and the uh, uh, consecrating of the priests. He is the mediator. He is the priest that ordains Aaron to get this thing going. Did you notice that? He is the prophet who declares God's will. Moses points forward, though, doesn't he? to the greater mediator, the greater one who would come. He writes in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Friends, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He is the prophet. He is the priest who represents. He is the king who rules over us so that we can come now as the church and live lives that are distinctly holy. So that Peter can write to us, the church, and say, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When we come to the book of Leviticus, we don't just have a list of rules. We're in a story, and that story is missional. That story has a proclamation of the good news of what God has done in Christ to the nations. They were to be ambassadors. And so we are to be like our God. We are to be holy and distinct so that we might tell the truth about his agenda and his ways to a watching world. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you have given us a way that we as sinners may come and gather even this morning to worship you. We're reminded that true worship requires representation, and our representative is Jesus. True worship requires sacrifice, and Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that we need. But we're also reminded that worship requires obedience, so help us to be attentive to your word and your ways. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray for those here this morning who are outside of Christ. You are holy. We are sinners. We deserve to die and we need a representative. We need a substitute. We pray for any here this morning who are outside of Christ. Would they come to him as their great high priest? As the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, their sins. Would they turn and trust in Christ alone? We pray all of this for our good, your glory, and the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name.